Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, and the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And he also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with the withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Thank you, Sandra. Keep your Bible or your Gospel of Mark journal open there to that passage because I'll be referring to it as we go through. So the more I've been... We're, we're not far into the Gospel of Mark, but the more I've been reading this Gospel and I've been paying attention more to Jesus as a person, uh, as, a, as a real historical human being who lived on this world about 2022-ish years ago, and I've, I've been listening and paying attention to how he interacts with people uh, and it's also brought into my mind other interactions that he has in the other Gospels. And something that has really struck me just in the few weeks that we've been in this Gospel is not only um, Jesus' sense of opposing the religious leaders of his time. And when I'm talking about that, I'm talking about the, the Pharisees, the scribes, the, the Sadducees not only opposing them in the sense of seeing their, their legalism, seeing their self-righteousness, seeing their traditionalism, but actually disliking that approach to faith so much 
that he actually seems at times, okay, and it's hard because we have to read this kind of 2,000 years separated. We can't face-to-face talk to Jesus and said, is this what you were trying to do? But it really seems like he's intentionally trying to upset these religious people. Not just say things and they interpret it wrong, but intentionally confront religious religiosity, this culture of traditionalism, this legalistic approach to God in a way that he will say things and do things that he knows will anger them. He knows is going to upset these religious people. And he does it to seemingly what seems to be a, a way to disrupt the system disrupt the culture of the time to even, we probably don't like to think about Jesus in this way, but even to buck up against the authorities of the time. And and I just couldn't help this week but think how many church folk in uh, in our culture would really be upset if they encountered the real Jesus today? You know, if Jesus really challenged our assumptions of Christianity, of what a good Christian is, and and kind of our approach to cultural Christianity. And my hope for this morning is not to intentionally upset anyone, but to preach this passage that we've just heard and to ask the Holy Spirit really to speak to people's hearts today, to convict us of any sense of self-righteousness that we have, any misappropriate approach, inappropriate approach to who God is and who others are, and that Jesus would really reveal um, the truth of his word to us this morning. So would you actually pray with me again as we come to our sermon this morning? Holy Spirit, Jesus has promised that you would be our helper, so we ask that you would help us this morning. Help us to understand how a passage like this, a, a historical moment and conversations that happened so long ago, can apply to us still today. And we pray that if we have any self-righteous presumptions in our own life, that you would confront us with those, that we might see Jesus, see you as you really are, and know your grace for real sinners. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, we're going to break this down into three sections that we have just had read to us from the Gospel of Mark. You have that outline also on the back of your worship guide if you want to be taking notes and see how that's broken down. But the first part we're going to look at is Jesus' conversation about fasting. There's this conversation that goes on about fasting in Mark chapter 2, verses 18 to 22. And so you have this, this question brought up. So the, the disciples of Jesus are asked, why are John, that's John the Baptist, why are John's disciples fasting and the Pharisees are fasting, but your disciples are not fasting? Now, before we get into kind of some more details of this conversation, let me just pause there and say Um, Jesus later would seem to teach that the purpose of fasting is not so that others see that you're fasting, so that others notice you are fasting. You see right off the bat here, there's a cultural assumption that part of the way we show off our holiness 
is, is, is if others see that we're really good, holy, religious people. You see what I mean? And so there's a problem here, I think, right off the bat, in that they, they notice a difference between the fact that some are fasting and some are not. What do I mean? Well, Jesus would later say, when you fast, don't throw ashes on yourself. Don't have the somber appearance. Look normal, in other words, so that people don't know you're fasting because your fasting is not for people. It's between you and the Lord. And yet there was some kind of cultural approach to fasting that they could tell when people were fasting. They could tell when the religious leaders were fasting because they made it known to everyone. But they, did, they, they saw that Jesus' disciples aren't fasting. Do you see that where there, there's an issue there? It, it almost seems to imply their fasting was just so other people would see their holiness, their religiosity. And so Jesus responds in verse 19 by saying, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is still with them? What is he saying? He's saying, I am with my disciples. Why should they be mourning? Why should they be sad? It's a time of joy. It's a time of celebration. It's a time of fellowship because I am here with them. We're here to party. We're not going to fast. But there will be a time when my disciples fast again. What is Jesus hinting at? Well, as you know, food is often accompanied with celebration and fellowship, right? I mean, just think of the wedding picture that he gives us. After the wedding, you have a big reception, right? That's one of the things that usually the, the, the parents of the bride spend the most money on is how many people do we have to feed and how many per head are we going to have to pay, right? It's a big deal paying for the reception, um, for some, it's a joy. For some, it's a financial burden. But either way, food is involved. Same with fellowship. Typically, at a church functions, if you are going to say the word fellowship, people are going to assume there's food there, right? We're going to have a fellowship time. Where's the food? Um, it, it, it's a cultural assumption, I think, for good reasons. Why is that? Because food, in a way, is, is a conversational cushion, what do I mean? It kind of breaks down discomforts at times. It can kind of create a, a cushion of, of comfort around a table or around a time of fellowship where you're eating together. It kind of breaks down uh, uncomfortable barriers. You know, if you've got a plate in your hand and you're snacking and talking to somebody, that's a little easier than if you're just sitting here like, mm, yeah, okay. Um, you see what I'm saying? So food naturally it influences fellowship. And so Jesus is saying, now's not a time to fast for my disciples. We're here to fellowship. We're here to enjoy each other's company and to rejoice and celebrate. But the time is coming when my people will fast again, which then creates the question of what is the purpose of fasting? And so I wanted to kind of in this moment, because we don't come across passages on fasting a whole lot, a whole lot to give you a few reasons why fasting is still a spiritual discipline of today. That I believe Jesus' disciples, who all of us, if we're Christians, if you're acknowledging yourself to be a believer, you are a disciple of Jesus. And so what does it mean for us to fast still today? So a couple things about fasting. One is that it teaches and trains us 
And it helps us demonstrate our faith, our dependence on God, and to find our satisfaction or our sense of fulfillment and joy in God before we find it in other things. So usually fasting is most associated with food, right? So you fast from food, which obviously that's important. Why is that? Why do we fast from food? Well, one of the reasons we do that is that it actually puts our body physically in a place where we're saying our spirit or our soul should be or where our soul is. What do I mean by that? Well, fasting is usually associated with lament or mourning or sadness or noticing the brokenness or or disruptiveness of the world as it's been broken by sin because of the fall. And so people will fast when they see injustice, and they will say, let's have a, have a time, a day, or, or a week of fasting and prayer. Or they see something happening, someone's very sick, somebody's gotten injured in a car accident, and they're on the brink of death, and they say, let's stop and fast and pray. So what does fasting do? Well, it puts your physical body in a place where your spiritual body either is or should be. Why is that? Because when you fast, your body hurts. You crave something. You desire something. You long and you hunger for something. And what you're saying is, Lord, this is how my soul feels. It hurts because things are not as they should be. Because I need you to intervene and change the situation. My soul hurts. It's longing and hungering for you to show up. And so that's why we fast, and that's why fasting is accompanied with prayer. Because you're saying, Lord, you fix the situation. You enter in and heal the brokenness. And so it really creates spiritually hungry beggars. You know, a beggar begs because they're hungry. And prayer, in a way, it, it, it's a way of begging God So when we fast physically, it's a way for us to spiritually become beggars of God, which is a good place for us to be. Now, you can also fast from other things. You can fast from devices. That's a common trend today, right? You put your phone away uh, on Sundays. We're not going to, nobody gets their phone. We're going to rest from our phone, from distraction, from social media attention. We're going to fast from whatever, social media and devices, Um, Other people fast from certain drinks for a time. Some people fast, um, there's actually evidence out there, and in the Bible it says some couples fast uh, physically. And so there's all types of different fasting you can do, which is actually supposed to create a sense of longing and desire, which associates you with a spiritual longing and desire for God to show up. Do you see that? The purpose of fasting. So now Jesus then goes from this topic of fasting and he brings up this imagery of, of a patch and wineskins. And I'll be honest with you, the first time I came to this, I was like, what in the world does this have to do with fasting? You're going to go from fasting to talking about sewing a garment and, and filling wineskins. What's your point? And so let me try to first illustrate that by explaining what's going on. The first is easier for us to understand, right? You got an old garment, and you put a new patch on it, 
what's going to happen? It's going to tear away. It's going gonna, it's gonna to shrivel up. The new patch is going to shrivel up and pull away, and it's going to make the tear even worse. So you can't put something new on something old or into something old. It's not going to work. The same thing goes with wine, this process of winemaking and wine fermenting. So their, their um, wine bottles at the time were not what we think of as wine bottles, right? The glass wine bottle or the big you know, glass container. But they were actually goat skins. And they would, they would uh, I'm trying to think how to do this not so graphically. Uh, so they would take a goat and they would skin it from the head down all in one solid piece. And so what you have there is the, the goat skin of a, a full body of a goat. And what they would do is they would tie off all of the legs to seal it up. And they would leave the neck open. They would fill, after they treat it and, you know, clean it and all that, they would put the wine into that goat skin, fill it up all the way up to the neck, and then tie off the neck so you've got all the wine right there in the goat skin. Now, if you put new wine that is unfermented wine in an already old and used and stretched out goat skin, all those seams and everything, they're just going to burst. It's not going to work. So you got to put new wine and new goat skin so that there's room to stretch. Now, let me just do a little cultural pause and say what this means is that the wine in the New Testament time really did ferment. There was real alcohol in the wine, all right? There's some kind of argument going around that, well, you know, the alcohol content was like 1% to 2%. No, in order to get real fermentation that's going to make a goat skin bubble, you got to get at least 10% content alcohol, all right? I'm just going to throw that scientific fact out there. So they had real wine. That's another, we'll, we'll have that topic and conversation another time. So there you go, real wine in the goat, goat skin. Now, what's Jesus' point? His point is you can't take something new and put it into a system or a practice that's old. You see, he's really confronting the cultural mindset of the day that was following all these legalistic and ritualistic and traditionalistic ways of doing life, and he's saying something new is showing up. The king is here. The savior of the world is here. You can't fit the gospel of Jesus Christ the, who, who brings grace into the world, you can't fit that into your traditional, ritualistic, legalistic system. I'm not going to fit. I'm going to blow it all up. You see that? So if you're culturally just going along with the religious Christianity of the day, Jesus wants nothing to do with that. He's going to come up and blow up your whole mindset. He wants to disrupt the religious system of his day and, I believe, of our day. Now, he's going to do that with grace and because he loves you. But he's doing that because he is zealous for God's glory, not religious people's glory. And so that's what we see there in that first point. And so... Um, let's move on to this second section. The next section is, what's the purpose of the Sabbath? He starts to hint at uh, this, this other cultural assumption about the Sabbath. So we talked about fasting, now we're going to talk about the Sabbath. So um, what's the scene? The scene is the disciples and Jesus, they're walking through this grain field, and it's on the Sabbath, it's on a Saturday for them at the time, the seventh day, and they're walking through, 
and they're hungry. You know, they're walking, they're hungry, so they start picking off heads of grain and putting them in their mouth and snacking on them to satisfy their hunger. And um, people see this. The Pharisees see this, and they say, look, why, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Now, let's stop again. Um, to understand their question, we have to understand a little bit about the religious system at the time, the pharisaical system at the time. So the Pharisees, in what we might say was a good desire to keep people from breaking God's law, created what they called a fence around the law, which was a pharisaical system of laws that were uh, tangible, measurable, on paper, specific, actual, practical laws that created a barrier around God's law, which he gives it to us in the Bible and specifically in the Ten Commandments, to say, okay, you should not do this on the Sabbath or any other time or whatever, and you should do this. And so those, that law, the Pharisaical law, was made up of 613 additional specific laws that the Pharisees put in place. 248 of those laws were what we would call positive commands or positive laws. In other words, do this. And then 365 of those laws were negative. Do not do this. Well, two of those 365 negative laws were do not walk on the Sabbath more than 1,099 steps. If you walk more than that, you're breaking the Sabbath. It's too much work. You take 2,000 steps, you're a lawbreaker. You take 1,099 steps, that should be enough to get you in and out of your house, wherever you need to go, uh, you know, to, from the bedroom to the living room, whatever. But you take more than, than 1,099 steps, you're a lawbreaker. Now, another law was when they said, you know, don't harvest on the Sabbath. Well, th- what they said was, that means you can't even pluck a piece of grain, one piece of grain, and you're breaking the law. And so they're taking God's law which said, you know, keep the Sabbath holy and don't harvest your fields. And they're saying, you know, in order to really make sure we don't do this, you can't pluck any grain heads off the stalk and you can't take more than 1,099 steps. So what are they charging the disciples with? They're saying, you're, bra- you're breaking the law. You can't do that. And the kind of underlying question is, whose law? God's law or what you think the law is? What you think I should be doing? And so let me just stop and say, this is how legalism works. Okay? Legalism is a system of understanding or teaching that says, I'm going to take God's law and really lower it to a point that is manageable and measurable. Now, what is God's law? It's summarized, Jesus says, by two great commandments. To love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. We can't do that. God's law demands perfect heart obedience. And we can't do that because we are fallen in sin. So what legalism does is because it doesn't want to admit that we can't keep God's law, what legalism does is it takes God's law and it says, you know what, I'm going to boil this down 
to things that I can measure for myself, and if I can keep those laws, I can feel good about myself and my position with God and my own sense of self-worth and self-righteousness, and if others don't keep that law, well, I can look down on them and judge them and criticize them. Man, thank God this doesn't happen in the church today, right? <laughs> Come on. This is exactly what we do, isn't it? We come up either with a written, spoken, or unspoken law system that says, this is how Christians should act and look, and if you don't do that, then I'm going to cast you out in my mind. You can't be a believer because you do that, or you don't do that. So what are some ways we do that today? That maybe our culture does that today. Well, um, some of this is influenced actually because of a, uh, a movement that came out of the Wesleyan system and was over, I think, overemphasized. And I, you know, I, I disagree with a lot of what the Wesley, Wesley system teaches still. But there was this holiness Keswick movement that influenced Methodists and Pentecostals and Charismatics initially, but then it spilled over into basically all types of American Christianity, and it's, it's especially, um, I wasn't going to use this word, but I'm going to use it, rank in the South, okay? And, and what is that? It's this idea that you cannot drink alcohol, you cannot smoke, you need to use holy language you cannot listen to certain types of music. You can't wear certain types of clothes. If you're going to church, if you're going to go to church, you need to wear this. Women should wear skirts and dresses. Men need to wear ties and slacks and coats. Uh, what else? You can't wear lipstick. Uh, you can't have your hair cut a certain style, and men's hair can't be too long. Uh, men should shave. There are certain aspects where men should shave. So I'm a lawbreaker, apparently. Um, you can't dance, you can't hold hands if you're not married. Uh, certain church design and architecture is based on a system of traditionalism. Uh, certain colors, you can't bring deviled eggs to the church lunch. That's terrible. Certain Bible translations. Thank you, I'm glad we could get some laughs out of that. R.C. Sproul, who is a theologian pastor, passed away recently. He actually said when he came into a church uh, one time and they asked if he wanted to play cards, and he said, sure, and they brought out a, a pack of Rook, the game Rook. And he said, I've never played this before. What, what game is this? And they said, Rook, it's the Christian card game. He was like, what? He was like, yeah, this is the only card game Christians can, pay, can play because there's no joker, there's no, you know, you don't, there's no betting involved, so it's the Christian card game. And they were serious. And whether it's those things I listed or other things, churches and, and, and Christian cultures, traditionalistic, ritualistic, legalistic, whatever, whatever istic word you want to throw on it, there are assumptions that people make about what a Christian should do and not do, and I'm going to measure your holiness based on that. And what does Jesus teach us? He says, listen, if you try to fit me into your neat little holiness bubble, I'm going to blow it all up. 
I'm going to blow it all up with my grace. You cannot satisfy God's holiness on your own. But I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly and that you might know true grace and true forgiveness and true righteousness that comes not from you, but from me, which is a gift to you by faith. That's the only thing that will satisfy God's law. And Jesus has done that for us on our behalf. Amen? And so that's the next thing that Jesus is really confronting them with, is this idea of a legalistic system. Now, the last thing we see in this passage is that Jesus comes in our our last little section here in chapter 3, again, almost as a practical application, right? So he's kind of, he's addressing the Sabbath issue, and then in order to test whether or not they really understand what he's saying, um, it, it, it describes the scene. Again, we see the scene. Again, he entered into the synagogue. Now, let's just say the synagogue was a place where the Jews went to worship, where the the Pharisees are boss, right? We're the boss here. This is our territory. You come into our territory, you got to live by our rules. So this is the synagogue. This is a Jewish place of worship. And there was a man there with a withered hand. Now let me just pause again because another law in the Pharisaical law says you can't help somebody of any disease or illness or anything like that. You can't help them on the Sabbath unless it's fatal and they're going to die. So a lame person, they're not going to die. You just got to leave them there until Monday or Sunday for them. Do you see the irony in that? What does the law say? Love your neighbor. Their law says ignore your neighbor until tomorrow. Do you see the irony? Okay, so there's a man with a withered hand, and Jesus knows. Jesus knows. Okay, here's a withered man. I'm not supposed to heal this guy on the Sabbath. And look at what verse 2 says. They watched Jesus. They were watching him. They're just waiting. They're just waiting to snap. They're ready to pounce, right? You can almost imagine. They're like lepers. They're like cats, ready to pounce on their prey. They're just watching. We tell our kids sometimes, don't stare. That's rude, right? Well, why? Because staring at somebody, watching somebody automatically implies what what are they doing what are they going to do there's there's an attitude hidden back there of some kind of judgment or critique and that's exactly what the pharisees are doing they're watching jesus why are they watching him so that they might accuse him their intent is not to see who who is this jesus that's doing these powerful things maybe he is the messiah no they want this guy gone He's a threat to their whole way of life. He's a threat to their uh, traditionalistic system. And so what are they doing? They're watching to see if there's a way to accuse them. So what does Jesus say? He asks them, is it lawful on the Sabbath? Hey, you, you who are so good at the law, tell me, you know, help me understand. Is it lawful for me to heal on the Sabbath, to do good on the Sabbath, or to do harm? But they were silent. They're just silent in their pride, right? And so look at how it describes Jesus. Now, 
before we actually look at that, how does the Bible describe God's character? In Exodus 34, one of my favorite passages, it says he is full of mercy and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And what does it say about Jesus? Look at this. And he looked around at them with anger and grieved at their hardness of heart. What is it saying about our Savior, our gracious and merciful, slow to anger Savior, that this system of pharisaical, legalistic approach to people and to God tests his patience. A God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. A God who is merciful and gracious when he's confronted with the hardness of heart of a legalistic society, it angers him. The God who is slow to anger hates legalism. He hates it. And he grieves at it. It saddens him. It upsets him. And so what does he do? What does he do? You can almost picture him. Now, this is a little bit of uh, inference or, you know, this could possibly be reading into this text a little bit. But I can almost picture him because other times he does that where he's looking at the Pharisees. There's a scene in, in another gospel where he's, uh, there's a woman who comes into a room who is, who is a notorious sinner and he's asking the Pharisees about her, and it says he looked at them and talked to her. And so I, I kind of imagine that same scene here, where he's interacting with the Pharisees, and here's the guy with the weathered hand, withered hand, and while he's still looking at the Pharisees, he says, stretch out your hand. And it doesn't say he touched him, it just says the man stretched out his hand, and immediately it was healed. What is Jesus doing? He's showing mercy. He's showing grace. He's disrupting the traditional society of the day. And, and he's showing up as a God who will not fit neatly into our religious system. He's the God who is the savior of our sins. Who came for broken people. Broken sinners. Who's bringing a new kingdom that will not fit into our way of doing church and doing Christianity. And it's glorious. <laughs> and it's awesome. And so a couple of things just to apply this. Um, some of you might know some church people that seem to have their life put together, but they are also some of the most judgmental people and critical people you know. Um, and maybe as I say that, the Holy Spirit is saying, could that be you? Are you the type of person that when you see others do things, your initial reaction is criticism rather than mercy and sadness? Are you the type of person who maybe has been in church all their lives and you have just soaked up this holiness culture, this traditionalistic way of approaching church, and you can't see that not only are others sinners, but you're a sinner in need of Jesus. 
who God has graciously shown up in his son for you. Okay? So that's the first thing. The second thing is, did you notice that all this guy had to do was reach out towards Jesus? Listen, Jesus has come to be the Savior of the world. He has come to cleanse us and save us from our sins. A a salvation that we cannot accomplish on our own, a righteousness that we cannot gain and work up on our own. Jesus came to save sinners. He came to seek and save the lost. And you know what he tells us to do? To receive that salvation, he doesn't say work at it really hard. He doesn't say show up to church every single Sunday and read your Bible and go to Bible study and do all these things. Now, as a pastor, I would love it if you did that, but it's not about me. It's about the Lord, right? And what does he say to the man with the withered hand? Just just reach to me. I'll take care of the rest. Just reach out in faith to Jesus. Place your faith in him for the forgiveness of sins and for righteousness that comes by grace through faith alone and Jesus Christ alone. And he will take care of the rest. He will give you his spirit to bear the fruit of the spirit to begin looking like Jesus, but that's not what gets us saved. What gets us saved is placing our hope and our faith in him alone. The one who died on the cross for our sins, the one who lived a perfect life that we could never live, and the one who rose from the dead and offers life forever through faith in him. And you guys know I'm going to say it, right? I get teased about this sometimes. That's good news. That is good news. Let's pray.